I'm grateful and happy to be able to come today. But I accept, gratefully accept the honor given me. But I would like you to know that I accept it gratefully because I know it is basically an honor you give you my husband. And it's always the joy of a wife to acknowledge the gift that her husband has been in her life. I'm going to make four remarks about him before I turn to my favorite topic, women. <laughs> because having been one for a long, long time, I'm not only used to it, but I can only say I appreciate the honor of sharing the gender of the Holy Virgin. Now, four remarks about my husband, some of them might not be known to you. At the age of 15, he read Plato in Greek, and the impression made upon him was so overwhelming that from this moment on, he realized my vocation is philosophy. Someone who writes, a pagan, a noble pagan, if you prove me to be wrong, I'll call you the greatest of my benefactors. Someone who declares officially, I want nothing but the truth. And at the age of 15, like St. Augustine, his heart beat of the very notion of the word truth. Then he studied philosophy at the university and made the acquaintance of a very remarkable man who was teaching truth, but simultaneously did not live up to it. And quite accidentally, Max Scheler said to my husband, who was 18 or 19, the Catholic Church has a truth. Having been born and raised in Italy, Italian is his first language, and he always kept a particular love and affection for Italy. He had never heard a word about the Catholic faith. He came from a totally liberant. He went to churches because of its artistic beauty, but he knew nothing about Catholic thesis. Catholic has a truth. What do you mean? He said, yes, she produces saints. Saint? What does it possibly mean, a saint? And Max Scheler said very clearly, a saint is someone transformed in Christ. And he mentioned St. Francis of Assisi, the beloved saint. The young Dietrich read his life he was in his way to the church. And he entered the church in joy, overwhelming gratitude. And from this moment on, his powerful intelligence was baptized. How I wish that all Catholic professors would have the intelligence baptized. And by it, I mean two things that through humility, number one, you're capable of seeing things that were darkened because of original sin. You know, obviously, 
or intelligence is still functioning. We are still capable of distinguishing between true and false. But unfortunately, because of original sin, there are certain domains that have been darkened. And one of them is the intimate sphere. It is probably the one domain when the devil has been most efficient at hiding the beauty of it. So from this moment on, this intelligence was baptized. And not long after his conversion, he wrote a book, which to me was crucially important, in defense of purity. Number two, he discovered supernatural truth. There are certain truths that you can discover standing but there are certain truths that you can only find on your knees. And all of a sudden, they become luminous. And this is true of revelation. If you read the Bible as an atheist, you are totally going to misread it. If you read it on your knees, all of a sudden, you discover a world of greatness, which is a gift of God. This man has formed me intellectually. And whatever I've accomplished, I owe to him. And this is why I realize the honor that you've given me is something that I give to him. Now, I told you that my very special field of interest for the last 30 or 40 years since I retired from Hunter has been women. I told you that I was qualified, but the question is, what is it that is so incredibly important about women today? And the answer is very simple. The vicious attacks made by feminists on the beauty and dignity of being a woman and the incredible mission that women have in this world. It's always wise to start at the beginning. So suppose that I start with Genesis. Now, Genesis is a book that all Catholics and Christians have read. One thing is to read a book, to get information. But my husband said to me, information is not enough. What you need is contemplation. So one thing is to read Genesis, of course, and only the second is to understand the tremendous beauty of the message communicated. And this is something that you have to do on your knees. God created man, chapter 1 of Genesis. He created him to his image and likeness. Male and female, he created them. Declaring one thing from the very beginning, the absolute metaphysical dignity of both men and women. The question of saying the bigger one or the higher one is nonsense. They are both human persons made to the dignity, image and dignity of God. Then come chapter two, which is more explicit. And we are told that Adam was created first. One of the stupid arguments of feminists saying 
you know, Eve was total second thought. I mean, Adam was truly the one real human being. Of course, it's total nonsense. I'm going to see in a moment. He create man first, and then stating it is not good for man to be alone, meaning to say to be a human person, or any person, is to be in communion with. We are made for communion. We are made for love. And then, obviously, all the animals that Adam perceived were not worthy to be Adam's companion. And then God, in his infinite goodness, put Adam to Eve, uh, put him to sleep. And then from the body of a human person, he made the body of Eve. Being a creator, I don't know how he did it, but one thing is something we definitely know. Eve is the only creature whose body is made from the body of a person. Adam's body is made from the slime of the earth. Between. <laughs> Well, that's not me, that is a Bible. No, let me remind a very modest, unaristocratic beginning, because the slam of the years. Eve is made from the body of a person. Therefore, from the very first moment, she's giving a dignity that, unfortunately, many women have lost sight of. And then, Adam wakes up from his sleep and sees her. And his response is enchantment. Flesh of my flesh and blood of my blood. He truly recognizes he's been given someone worthy to be his companion. And for the sake of his wife, a husband will leave father and mother and adhere to his wife. It's not that she will leave, he will leave. And then what happens was that the serpent, the most astute and the most vicious of all creatures, knowing that God had severely prohibited to eat of the fruit of one tree. There were plenty of trees, but this one fruit was forbidden. And then is going to turn to Eve. All my friends know that I have a immense love and admiration for St. Augustine. When I discovered his confessions at the age of 19, he had an enormous influence on the development of my life. And I still believe it's one of the greatest books I've ever written. St. Augustine, now we must keep in mind that even great saints and great thinkers can make mistakes. And I dare say to St. Augustine, I apologize, but I believe you made a big mistake in writing that the serpent turned to Eve because she was a weaker one. Number one, there's no mention at all that she was weaker. And I claim on the contrary, he turned to Eve because being extremely clever, he knew full well 
that once she was conquered, he would follow suit. And this is precisely what happens. Now, let me draw your attention to something which is crucial today. He turns to Eve and said, why have you been forbidden to eat of the fruit of that tree? In the course of the last 30 or 40 years, I've been, became conscious of the thing. Beware of the questions that people raise. I mean, after all, if you're an intelligent person, is it perfectly legitimate to raise questions? I mean, an intelligent person raises questions. But what we do not know is that you betray yourself by the questions that you raise. The noble questions, the great questions, the intelligent questions, and the vicious questions. And I claim that these questions are gaining currency in our society. There are certain questions that you should not raise, because by doing so, it shows already that you have taken a metaphysical position, which is evil. So he says innocently, why not? And if instead of saying, God being God, he has a right to make commandments and I will obey. And immediately she yielded. Don't forget, he promises that if she is a fruit, he's going to become like God. A temptation that has never died in the history of the world. And you can only say today, you hear the great scientists and these great geniuses announcing that the progress of technology and science are such, we are going to be able one day to be like God. We're very close to it. I mean, already we have the privilege of, by a fiat, destroying the world. Isn't that a magnificent achievement? This is something that we can do today. She eats, eats of the fruit, gives it to him, does he object? Does he say, my dear wife, for goodness sake, this had been prohibited? He takes it. The first big wimp in history. <laughs> and unfortunately, not the last one. <laughs> no, let me make one remark. What is given to women for good or for evil is her influence on man. She doesn't have his authority. You know, as a matter of fact, most of the time, it is the male that has the authority to make practical decisions. But she's something infinitely more important. Authority can command actions, influences, changes souls, for good or for evil. And I know innumerable cases in which a priest said to me, uh, oh, my vocation to my grandmother, a very simple person who had no PhD and nothing of the sort, but she loved God, and her love of God was expressed in her everyday attitude. No, both of them are guilty 
God, of course, knows it, questions them, and questions Eve, puts the blame on the serpent. Now, this is something that we all do. You just take little children, you scold the child, you say, yes, but my, my brother told me, or my sister told me, or my friend told me. We are never called it, it's always tua culpa. We all do it. No, the question is, it is a serpent. And then he turns to Adam and he says, she who have given me as companion, give it to me and I eat it. I said that he was a wimp, but with original sin, another terrible things took place. Namely, the temptation always to put the blame on others, not on me, on others. And so he puts the blame on her. Before original sin, Adam had a feeling of holy chivalry to protect and to defend. All of a sudden, he becomes a coward and puts a mistake on her. Both are terribly punished. First the one, cut off from God, most terrible thing that could happen. Number one, punished by death. And when you get old, and you get up in the morning, not knowing whether the sun will see the sun setting, Death becomes a tremendous reality. And you realize that it is meant to be a fearful punishment that body and soul are torn apart. It's fearful. But apart from that, there are special punishments. One of them is for Adam to earn his bread with the sweat of his brow, which, by the way, could many Adam share with Eve because I recall going to southern Italy for the first time in my life after the war. And it's very hot. Italian peasants start working very, very early in the morning. And then at noon time, they go home for the famous Italian siesta. And they were going home. And the husband was sitting on a donkey. And the wife was walking next to it, carrying a bundle. That's what I call a gentleman. <laughs> I was absolutely horrified. And this is a tragedy of original sin that Adam, who was so enchanted by Eve, suddenly looks down upon her. She's weaker. She's the one who is actually responsible for the sin. And therefore, the tragedy that has taken place from this moment on Millions and billions of women have been abominably treated, horribly treated, as slaves, as inferior, good for pleasure, or to be used as slaves. Well, this was bound to have enormous reactions. Nevertheless, one thing that the devil forgot, he was told that his head was going to be crushed. Well, not a very pleasant prospect, but in the meantime, he's always working to try to create an abyss between husband and wife, between male and female. And then what happens was, in the course of time, one of the most overwhelmingly beautiful plans of God was fulfilled. A young girl was conceived 
without original sin. Tota Pulska, in incredible beauty, please into God from the very moment of her conception. She's a woman and she's a virgin. And one very fine day, an angel of God appears to her and screeds her as honor and hints at the fact that she's invited to become the mother of God. She's overwhelmed. And she raises a question in trembling reverence. How can this be? I know not man. And then she's guaranteed that her virginity is going to be kept. Now we have the most holy, the most perfect, the most overwhelmingly beautiful creature, a woman who is greater than angels. No, I wish that every single girl, from the moment that she becomes conscious of her sex, understand that she has a role model that she must pursue. In other words, that she must be conscious of the fact that the very female body has a dignity that calls for veiling, because whatever is sacred is should be veiled. Do you realize, and now I'm addressing myself to, to men, that obviously the husband and the wife have an important role to play in the creation of a new human person. We all know it. But what we forget is at the very moment that the semen has fecundated the female egg, you don't have a human person. You have a living things, but you don't have a human person. And in order to have a human person, you need a soul. And the soul is not the production of either husband or wife. They have nothing to do with it. It's a totally new creation. Now, the fecundated egg is in the body of a woman. And then God, in his infinite goodness, touches the female body and puts a soul in the fecundated egg. You know, therefore, from the first moment, he has a dignity full dignity of being a human person. I wish that every husband embracing his wife, having just learned that she has conceived a new human person, would embrace her in fear and trembling, because whatever God touches is sacred. And therefore, there is a sacredness about the body of a woman that today is totally and radically forgotten. Now, obviously, Mary, or the very existence of Mary, was going to have an enormous influence on society. And therefore, you have Christianity. And in the Middle Ages, you have a Christian society that is to say centered on faith with a devotion to the Holy Virgin and a devotion to the dignity of women that you find, for example, magnificent exemplified in Dante. And in this very moment, the woman is understood to be 
a messenger of God, and therefore she is treated with trembling reverence. But Satan never sleeps, and he's not going to give up victory. And so he keeps spreading his poison. And I'm awfully too sorry to say that one great victory was achieved with Protestantism. Because the tragedy, one of the tragedies of Protestantism is that all of a sudden, the devotion to Mary was pushed aside. Not long ago, a Protestant said to me, you Catholics consider the Holy Virgin to be a, a fourth person of the Holy Trinity. It's a lie, but there's nothing more successful than lies when they're cleverly delivered. And so therefore, in all Protestant countries, the devotion to the Holy Virgin vanished. And in this very moment, it gave impact to feminism, because let me repeat, we must face the fact that in innumerable countries, and still today, women are abominably treated as slaves, object of pleasure, or slaves. And so the whole feminist movement started to develop in Protestant countries. The most powerful way of spreading a message, today it is television, it is movies, it is theater, it is books, much more than when you teach in the classroom. These are things that inflame people. And in the 19th century, the book was written, a theater play, The Doll's House of Ibsen, which indicates very plainly that in that particular country, women were considered to be insignificant, untalented, stupid, but nevertheless, pleasant to have when you want a sort of healthy relaxation from the serious business which is making money. And the movement gained more and more impetus and courage persisted. And today it has led to the abomination of abomination of feminists who used to be Christians and are going to say the curse of women is pregnancy. Why is it? Because they prevent it from coming into this on this human taste or becoming famous or becoming president of the United States. I mean, keep in mind, this is in the wings, you know, to have finally a woman who is president of the United States. Well, uh, let's not speak about that thing because it's sort of depressing. <laughs> at, any, at any rate, what happened was maternity is the greatest obstacle to women preventing me from reaching greatness. And what is greatness? Human fame, making money, having power. And so what has happened in the meantime, many people became converted to the idea, unless a woman can liberate himself from the burden of pregnancy, the French feminist Simone de Beauvoir says, I mean, after all, produce a child is nothing. This is something which is better done by rabbits. And so therefore, there's absolutely no reason to praise women for giving birth. It indicates this stage of inferiority. And therefore, the war on life 
And this is what we are facing today. And I claim that we have come to a crossroad in history. Life or not life. I do not hesitate to say that the law permitting abortion was the greatest victory of Satan since original sin. Why? Because Eve was called the mother of the living. Satan is called a murderer from the very beginning. Therefore, who is the enemy of Satan? The woman. And the woman starts for life. Now you have Mary. And Mary gives birth to someone who is not only, Mary is not only the mother of the living, but she gives birth to someone who says, I am the life. And there's only one person, Christ, who says, I am the life. Mary is the mother of the living. And this one man who is life itself is the only priest, because it's only in the church that we have priests. And when a priest enters the altar or the sanctuary, it's no longer Father Smith or Father Prawn or whatever it might be. It is a representative of Christ. Christ is the one performing Mass. Now, what is going to happen is that today, feminism is going to say, not only is pregnancy an obstacle to the greatness of women, but on top of it, the viciousness of the Catholic Church is that she prevents them from becoming priests. Let me make one remark. The day that men can give birth, in this very day I will battle for the priesthood of women, but they can't. And this is something which is intrinsically impossible. Mary is the mother of the only priest. And being the mother of the only priest, you will understand that it's impossible to be mother and son simultaneously. Therefore, it's not the church doesn't want to ordain women. It cannot, because it doesn't make any sense at all to see the mother and the son are identical in their function. Keep in mind that we are in a crossroad. Today, the mission of women is to become conscious of the beauty and dignity of their function. And by so doing, by so doing, they will reconquer men. The big problem today is that you have one divorce after another. People don't even get bothered to get married. Why should you? Because you know it's not going to last. You know, it's just uh, you're sitting together, for, that's all there is to it. That is the greatest danger today. And my husband always said to me, it is crucial to diagnose a time particularly. And I said, today, until women rediscover the beauty of the mission and stand for life, the world is doomed. Thank you.